Amen. Thank you, worship team. Good morning, everyone. Great to see you all. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. If you have one, go with me to the book of John, the Gospel of John, chapter 4. If you're new to New Life, uh, my name is Rich. I'm the lead pastor here. And after this service, uh, some of our staff will be downstairs. I'd love to meet you if I've uh, never met you before. Before we get into our message today, next week we're going to be starting a new sermon series on the book of Proverbs. And so for four to six weeks or so, we're going to be looking at uh, some of the Proverbs. Well, what I'd like us to do as a church together, starting June 1st, which is um, Wednesday, that June 1st as a church that we would read a proverb that corresponds with the day of the month. And so there's 31 Proverbs. Typically, there's 30, 31 days uh, in a given month. And so on June 1st, uh, that we'd read... Proverbs 1 together. On June 2nd, we'd read Proverbs 2 together. On June 3rd, we'd read Proverbs 3 together. I I know I'm getting deep here. Um, (laughs) Stay with me. Stay with me. On June 4th, Proverbs 4. You get the point. uh, But how I'd like us to read it is contemplatively. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, nuggets of wisdom throughout Proverbs, many. But what strikes you as you read one, maybe one resonates uh, strikes you, and then you, you just sit there with God. You journal, you pray out of that. And as a church, let's do that together. I think there will be some good fruit. And then next week, we're going to kick off this series on the book of Proverbs. But today, I wanted to, last week, Deborah Hirsch came. She, she preached, she gave her story in the morning. In the evening, she gave a really wonderful seminar on the integration of spirituality and sexuality. And what I wanted to do was to create a, like, a, give a, like a part two to that message that to, to orient us theologically and biblically to put a little bow on what she said yesterday. So, uh, and, and this is important for us. If you come to New Life Fellowship, one of our M's is marriage to Christ. That is that out of our married lives and out of our single lives, we live out of, our, our, out of marriage to Christ. And so there's implications in terms of our marriages, our singleness, and of course, our sexuality. And so you'll hear one or two or three messages in a given year on sexuality because it's a critically important issue that we need to wrap our minds around. There's a lot of confusion, a lot of tension, a lot of divisiveness in our culture. And so we want to go to what does Scripture teach us and how are we to uh, interact with this big concept and topic of our sexuality. And so I want to say from the onset, uh, I'm going to preach for 30, 35 minutes and I'm not going to be able to nearly unpack everything that I want to, but I trust that God's going to meet us today as we think about our longings, our desires, and God. Our longings, our desires, and God. So let's pray. Let's offer our time to Jesus as we enter into our passage this morning. Lord, that, is, uh, that song we just sang is the cry of our heart that we need you. In every aspect of our lives, we need you in our relationships, in our workplace, in our families, in our, in our finances. Lord, we need you. And Lord, we need you this morning as well to speak to us through the power of your spirit. And so, Lord, give us ears to hear your voice. Give us eyes to see what you're doing in our lives and give us a heart to receive every good gift you have for us today. We pray this in Jesus' name and everyone said... Amen. Our longings, our desires in God, the integration of spirituality and uh, sexuality. I'd like to start off a message on spirituality and sexuality by saying that the church can learn a lot about this topic from Prince. The church can learn a lot about this topic from Prince, the late entertainer. Uh, as most of you know, Prince uh, passed away recently. 
Uh, he was one of the more iconic performers and musicians of our generation. But what uh, Prince did in his music is noteworthy for our time today. The New York Times wrote an article, an op-ed article, someone wrote in uh, the New York Times recently called Prince's Holy Lust. Prince's Holy Lust. And the article says a couple of important things, that there are two keys to understanding the man and his music, his sexuality and his spirituality. And then it goes on to say that for him, Prince, who was a devout Jehovah's Witness, it says for him, the love of God and the sexual urges we feel are one and the same somehow. For him, it all comes from the same root inside a human being. God planted these urges, and it's never wrong to feel that way. The urge itself is a holy urge. Now, we might look at Prince's life and conclude that his understanding of sexuality and spirituality didn't reflect the sexual ethic of Jesus and the kingdom of God. But one thing that we can learn from Prince is the integration of these two things, of sexuality and of spirituality. Because Prince would consistently integrate these themes in his music. And that's what we need to pay attention to this morning. He might have gone off this end here, but what he got right, well, there was an integration with spirituality and sexuality. The church many times separates them. Spirituality is over here, and sexuality is way over there. But they are to be integrated, spirituality and sexuality. And at the core of it is this interplay. This interplay, and the key word is desire and longing. What unites spirituality and sexuality together is desires, its longings. And I like to define spirituality and sexuality for our time so that we're clear in terms of what I'm talking about today. It's really important that we get some good definitions here. And I'm drawing these definitions from Deborah Hirsch's book on redeeming sex, a really wonderful book. And she lays out two definitions that I find is very helpful for our time, especially with this conversation. She says, spirituality can be described as a vast longing that drives us beyond ourselves in an attempt to connect with to probe and to understand our world. Beyond that, it is this inner compulsion to connect with the eternal other that is God. And then the summary of it is this. Essentially, it is a longing to know and be known by God on physical, emotional, psychological, and spiritual levels. The question is, what is sexuality? Sexuality can be described as a deep desire and longing that drives us beyond ourselves in an attempt to connect with, to understand that which is other than ourselves. Essentially, it is a longing to know and be known by other people on physical, emotional, psychological, and, and spiritual levels. And so sexuality is more than just the act of sex. It is a desire. It is a longing to connect with someone, to know them, and to be known by them. Spirituality is a connection, a longing to be known by God and to know God. Sexuality is this deep drive, desire, longing to know others and be known by others. And so we need to integrate sexuality and spirituality. And because at the core of this massive issue is longing and desire. We are all people thirsty for something, thirsty for connection. And so when I talk about this longing, I'm not just talking about uh, a sexual union exclusively, although that might be included. I'm talking about this vast longing of desire to know others and to be known by others. And in our text this morning, we encounter a woman who has a broken spirituality and she has a broken sexuality. 
And it is in this context that Jesus meets her. And all of us in this room, to some degree or another, we have broken spiritualities and we have broken sexualities. And Jesus wants to meet us this morning. In John chapter 4, hear the word of the Lord. It says this. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by a well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. It'd be like a Mets fan asking a Yankee fan, hey, can you give me something to drink here? It's just like, wait a second, what's happening here? Something's wrong here. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank it from, him, from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Amen. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, and this is really the cry of our hearts this morning, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. The story begins by Jesus saying that Jesus had to go through Samaria. And this is an interesting way to start a story because in that time, Jews did not go through Samaria. They did not go to that neighborhood. Because Samaritans were considered unclean. They were considered mixed breeds, half breeds. And so Jewish people would rather take a long route around Samaria and avoid them than to go through that neighborhood. And so to start that is very odd for our, our, our cosmopolitan and city sensibilities. It'd be like us saying, I need to go to New Jersey, but let's go through lower Manhattan. It's like, why would you do that? Why would you want to go to New Jersey through lower Manhattan? Have you seen traffic in lower Manhattan? It's terrible. Uh, when Rosie and I got married on our wedding day, we got married in Brooklyn. Our reception was in Weehawken, New Jersey. And for whatever reason, the, uh, the, the limo driver decided to take us through lower Manhattan, through Chinatown, through that whole area. And, and that traffic, yes, you know where I'm going with this. We missed our cocktail hour. I mean, everybody missed the cocktail hour. I mean, I saw money going out. I'm crying. Rosie's crying. We just got married and she's crying already. You know, we missed the cocktail hour, you know. <laughs> So to go to Jersey through like lower Manhattan, it's just like you don't want to do that. To go through to Samaria, it'd be like, why would you want to go through there? But Jesus tells his disciples, basically he has to go this way because Jesus was on a mission. Jesus knew God, he's God, and, and Jesus had this word of knowledge that, that there was a woman with deep longings and deep desires, and he wanted to demonstrate the power of his love. And Jesus this morning is on a mission to encounter you this morning, that he knows you have longings, he knows you have deep desires, and Jesus wants to encounter you. He's on a mission to encounter you this morning. 
to demonstrate the power of his love. And so Jesus gets to this neighborhood. He stops by a well. The well is a community gathering point, and everyone needs water, and so this is the place to be. And so the story says that when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? I find it funny that his disciples had gone into town to buy food. I mean, Jesus was thirsty, and they went out to get food. His disciples were always messing stuff up. But, I, but, but Jesus was thirsty. And so he encounters this woman at noon. This is the hottest time of the day, scorching hot. And the woman goes to the well all alone. And the fact that she goes to the well all alone speaks about the multiple layers of challenges that she faced. As a Samaritan woman, she would be alienated from the Jewish community, from Jewish people. She would be alienated from Jesus in disrespect. And at that time, she wasn't only just alienated from the Jewish community, she was also an outcast by her own people. And we know this because she came to draw water alone. Now, in biblical times, uh, drawing water and, and chatting at the well was the social high point of women in that time. And so women would gather to draw water. They talk about, you know, the housewives of Samaria, and they talk about all that stuff. There, They gather. It was a social high point for these women to talk about the different issues of the day. And, and so this woman came alone as an outcast. And the reason why, one of the reasons why, because she was living openly with a man that she was not married to. Oh, in addition to that, she was also married five times before this. We'll come back to that in a moment. And so this woman, is, this woman is alienated in her spirituality, and she's alienated in her sexuality in the broadest sense of that word. And in the deepest sense, she's thirsty, thirsty for love. She longs to be seen. She longs to be known. And when I look at the story, I look at this Samaritan woman, I look at that she's a picture of all of our lives. We're all thirsty. We all long to be seen by others. We all long to be known by others deeply. We are spiritual beings and we are sexual beings. We have a spirituality and we have a sexuality. And again, it's a desire to be known by God and it's a desire to be known by others. But we find ourselves often feeling alone. And this is for all of us. Some of you are single and you have a deep longing for connection this way here, horizontally, but yet... You, like the Samaritan woman, you feel all alone. Some of you are married, and there's this deep longing to be known and to know your spouse, and yet you find yourself married but lonely. And I'd argue that to be married and lonely, it might be more difficult than to be single and lonely. Because when you're married, the object, the desire of your affection is right before you. And it's, you're still not meeting it. It's like, you know what it's like? It's like dying of starvation in a supermarket. <laughs> it makes no sense to die of starvation in a supermarket. All the desires are right there. Whatever you want, the object of your longing is right there. But when you're married and there's no connection, it's like dying of starvation in a supermarket. And there are many people that are single and lonely. And there are many, many people that are married and lonely. In addition to that, we grew up, for many of us, we grew up without being seen by our parents, being really known by our parents. Maybe our parents didn't know how to see us. Our parents didn't know how to be in relationship with us. 
or our parents were so busy for one reason or another they were very rarely present physically or emotionally and so we grow up with this insatiable desire to be seen there's a thirst to be known and for many of us we've never experienced it on a deep level and so we cry out see me we cry out know me and this is a, a spiritual desire, and this is the desire that we have of our sexuality. We want to be known by God, but we also want to be known by others. And this longing to be seen is actually really revealed in our interactions on social media. This is why sociologists and researchers of culture has called this generation uh, generation notification. Generation notification. Because notifications on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram, all that stuff there, reveal something about our longings to be seen. Research is showing that when we get a notification, you post a picture, you put a status up there, what have you, that, that when there is a response, when that little red thing comes up, there's something inside of us that, that it's energized. And psycholo psych psychologists are saying that there's a release of dopamine in the brain with these notifications. And dopamine is basically, it controls the, 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 the brain's reward and pleasure centers. And so whenever there is a notification, you've seen it before, all of a sudden, I wonder who said something. <laughs> and you get enough of these, it really contributes what these psychologists are saying, and, and, and it contributes very similarly to, it becomes an addictive compulsion which can become similar to drugs like crack or heroin. And so the brain experiences pleasure that can actually lead to addiction. And basically, it's, I see me, which is why I read an article, someone asked, would you rather get a negative comment on something or no comments? And one person said, I'd rather get a negative comment because at least you see me. At least you're acknowledging my existence. As opposed to, you ever posted a picture and go, hey, nobody's liking it. Maybe I need to repost it again or something like that. But my daughter, doesn't she look really nice? Nobody want to say nothing about my baby, you know? <laughs> and get all depressed. No one says anything all depressed. Why? Because we long to be seen. We long to be known. Our deepest desire, perhaps, is to be seen. And yet, at the same time, to be known and seen is perhaps our greatest fear. And so it's our deepest desire, but it's also our greatest fear because we fear people shaming us. We, feel, we fear people knowing us and seeing us, all of who we are, and using that against us. And in the church, this happens all the time. We fear uh, letting people know who we are because, I mean, the church can become an, an ecclesial kind of TMZ. We know a little bit about you, and we're going to just let the world know and exploit you with it. And so we're afraid. Can I really show you who I am? Although I deeply long to, but I'm deeply afraid to. And so we have this deep desire, and we have these deep longings. But it, because of the, the power of the fear of, 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 of showing who I am, of knowing others, what actually happens is that we suppress our desires, and we don't let ourselves be known by anyone. And what happens in the church when we don't uh, allow our desires, we're not familiar with our longings, and, and what happens is there's a lot of lying that takes place in the church and a lot of hiding that takes place in the church. We're afraid how we will be perceived by others. And so we lie. We present ourselves as someone that we're not because if you really knew who I was, 
would you still want to be around me? If you, if, you, if you saw how explosive I am, would you still want to be by my side? If you see the struggles of my life, do you still want to see me? And so we hide and, and, and we have secrets and these, this fear leads to our secrets. And as the saying goes, you're only as sick as the secrets you keep. And the church is filled with a lot of sick people because there's so many secrets that we have and yet we long to be known and we long to be seen. But this puts us in a very vulnerable position. The Samaritan woman was very vulnerable in this passage. She had a longing to be known, but time and time again, in the process of letting herself be known and, and exchanging relationships, she was deeply hurt. And I should note that she found herself in this predicament because the men, most likely because of the men that she had in her lives, they treated her as they pleased. The men never really saw her. The story says she has five husbands. And in that time, women had no power to divorce their husbands. The only one who could divorce was the man. The man could divorce the woman. The woman could never divorce the man. And so for whatever reason, he could divorce her. She wasn't a good cook, divorced. She didn't please him in the bedroom, divorced. She talked back, divorced. Whatever reason, he, he could, and, and, and rabbis have written on all this stuff that whatever reason, she burnt the toast, you know, divorced. And so the Samaritan woman was married five times and most likely divorced five times. Could you imagine? She, she gets married and, and her long, and then divorced. Then the next relationship comes. Maybe this is the one, divorced. And then maybe the next relationship, then divorced. Five times she has been married and divorced. The sixth person she's with doesn't even care about her enough to marry her. And so she has dealt with six men. But in this passage, the seventh man shows up. And I'm so glad that it's number seven. In the Bible, the number seven is the word, the number of perfection. The number seven is the word for completeness. Some of you are looking for the perfect man. He came 2,000 years ago. There's only one perfect man. He came 2,000 years ago. He's in this passage right here. The seventh man shows up. And Jesus shows up and in the midst of her isolation, he becomes present to her. This woman has a broken spirituality. She has a broken sexuality. She has lived her life disconnected from God and disconnected from people. But when Jesus shows up, he gives her what she is really thirsting for. He gives her this this unconditional and undivided love and attention. He sees her. He sees, he sees everything about her. And she's never been seen like this before. She's never been seen by people in her own culture, let alone seen by a Jewish rabbi. But Jesus crosses whatever boundary that there existed to get to her. And Jesus will cross whatever boundary he has to to get to you. And so Jesus sees her, and when Jesus sees her, he doesn't see what we usually see in her and in people. Usually when we see people, we tend to notice their beliefs and their behaviors. But Jesus doesn't see her beliefs, and Jesus doesn't see her behaviors. Jesus sees her entire story. And Jesus says to her, you've been married five times, and the person you're living with is not even your husband. 
And at that, but what Jesus is saying is, I know your entire story. I know your narrative. I know where you've been. I know your ups and your downs. I know your pains and your sorrows. I know your whole story. And it is only when we know the stories of others that we can really make sense of their behavior and their belief system. Many people, we, we see someone's belief system or their behavior and we judge them. But you can't judge them until you know their story. And when you begin to know their story, you go, now it makes sense. And this is why the church should be the place where we are exchanging stories all the time. And not judging on the surface of behaviors and beliefs. And that doesn't mean the behaviors and beliefs need to stay that way, but it's only when we understand story that begins to make sense. Jesus said, yes, five husbands. And the person you're with, he's not even married to you. He knows her entire story. And Jesus knows your entire story. And the story went like this here. It says, the woman said to him, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and has to keep coming back to draw water. And he told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say I have no husband. And the fact is, you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What have you said is quite true. And sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. And so Jesus asked for a drink. They get into this conversation, which is culturally taboo. He offers her living water, and it's a particular kind of water. This is not generic water. This is, this is a particular kind of water. It's the water of his love that sees everything about her and still loves her. And that's the love, that's the water that Jesus gives you today. He knows everything about you, everything about you, and he loves you. He knows her shame. He knows your shame. He knows her mistakes. He knows your mistakes. He knows your regrets. He knows her regrets. And the water that he offers is this unconditional love that sees us and still loves us. God sees all of us, and he sees every part of our lives. And we might be able to hide things from people, but we can never hide anything from God. God sees it all. It reminds me, uh, a few years back, I went to a dentist and... um, and I had to get my teeth cleaned and, and all that there. And it's been, it had been a while since I'd been to the dentist. This is a good reminder for some of you that it's been a while to go to the, schedule your appointment. And so I get to this dentist. Before I get there, I hadn't been there for a while. So I wanted to hide the fact that I hadn't been there for a while. And I did that by brushing my teeth like a crazy person before the dental appointment. So I brush my teeth, I'm brushing, I'm flossing like a crazy person. I'm thinking maybe, maybe he won't recognize that it's been a while, that long a time since I've had my last checkup. And so I'm brushing my teeth, uh, you know, the whole mouthwash, the flossing. I mean, I'm really I extra, extra time. And I sit in the chair, and within the first 30 seconds, he says to me, I can see you haven't been here in a while. (laughs) But what he said next was really helpful. He said, well, well, let's get you all new. Let's get you all new. Now, he could have said, you haven't been here in a while. Do you know every six months you're supposed to be here? How could you do that there? When Jesus sees you, he knows everything about you. He could see it, but you know what Jesus says? Let's make you all new. Let's make you brand new. Jesus knows every aspect of our fallen human nature, and the water that he gives is the water that says, I know you and I love you. 
I know everything about you and I love you. Let's get you all new. And so our deepest longing is to be known by God ultimately and to be known by others, to see and to be seen, to know and to be known. And so the story is really about our longing for connection. And what we learn is that only God can satisfy the deepest desires of your hearts. But having said that, we need to wrestle with this issue of sexuality. If God, he gives her living water and satisfy the deepest thirst of her soul, and this is what God does. But what does this mean for our relationships here? What does this mean for our sexuality? Because you cannot divorce spirituality from sexuality. They are to be integrated together. And the church, we tend to do a good job, the church, I mean, across the globe, talking about spirituality. But we have very little or just bad language for sexuality. And so what I want to do for the remainder of our time is I want to focus on three ways that we approach our sexuality, three postures that we have, uh, or as what um, uh, Christopher West have called, uh, three diets that we tend to eat. And this helps to shape the way we see our desires and shape the way we see our longings and shapes the way we see our sexuality. And so again, sexuality, back to this, really important. You should take a picture of this. You should write it down here. It's a longing to know and be known by other people on physical, emotional, psychological, and spiritual levels. And what we do with our desires and what we think about our desires says a lot of what we believe about God. What you think about your desires and what you do with your desires says a lot about what you believe about God. And so there are three directions. Most of us tend to choose the first two, and Jesus offers us the last one here. The first diet uh, that gives us language for sexuality is this diet called the starvation diet. The starvation diet. And this, this diet describes a large portion of the church, maybe describe a large portion, a portion of our church. It's a, it's a diet that says that your longings and your desires are bad, especially your sexual longings. They're bad. Passion is bad. And this theology permeates our churches so much so that to even talk about sexuality for many people is taboo have a hard time. And whatever you can't talk about, you're usually ashamed about. And if you can't talk about it, shame is dominating your life. Last week, after, at the end of the seminar, someone asked me, um, a, a visitor from another church, they said, Rich, what are you preaching on next week? I said, oh, I'm preaching on sexuality. You're going to do like a part two of this message here. And this was a person, a couple from like a holiness kind of tradition. And so they said, you're doing that on a Sunday morning? I said, yeah. And they kind of walked away with it like they're, oh, okay, okay, that's what, that's what. But that's what many of the church is like. We, it's the language of suppression and repression. And so there's no language for desires. The only language you have is your desires are bad. And it comes out of a bad theology which says that pleasure is a bad thing and that your body is a bad thing. And so as this dualistic spirituality, the soul is good, your body is not. This is why many people have a hard time with Sabbath. Because we can't get ourselves around to joy and delight. And if something feels too good, it must be of the devil. <laughs> this, this can't be of God. And yet the devil's never created anything. God's the one who created pleasure. The devil is the one who twists pleasure. But God is the God of pleasure. God is the God of joy. God is the God of delight. God is the God of love. 
And so, but many Christians, we starve ourselves and we feel guilty when we experience pleasure. Ron Rollheiser, he writes about many uh, divorces that take place in spirituality. And one of the divorces I find is very important. He says there's a divorce between religion and eros or sexuality, uh, erotic love, passion, longings, desires. This is what he says. Like all divorces, it was painful. And in all divorces, the property got divided up. Religion got to keep God and the secular got to keep sex. The secular got passion and God got chastity. But God is the author of passion. God is the author of sex. It's not that the devil has sex and the devil has passion. God is the author of all that. But what happens is the starvation diet says we have bad theology about our body, bad theology about pleasure, bad theology about sexuality. And so it's the language of suppression and repression. So we start feeling guilty about having desires. But what ends up happening is this. When you, when you live the starvation diet long enough, many people start acting out in secretive ways and ultimately end up in bondage. Have you ever seen like hyper-fundamentalists or people that have bad theology, a, 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 a church, an organization, a college, or what have you, and a scandal comes out, an abuse comes out, molestation comes out. And, and many times, not all the time, many times it's because they had a starvation diet. There was no language and theology for desire. And so they suppressed it. After a while, you need to eat. And when you're hungry, you eat about anything. And so this starvation diet permeates our churches. And what we need to learn today about our sexuality is that God has given it to us as a gift. And if you, if you starve yourself, what's going to happen is what happens in the next diet. It's, it's the fast food diet. And so many times those that starve themselves end up going right into the fast food diet. And the world, the church many times is dominated by the starvation diet. The world and the world system many times is dominated by the fast food diet. And the fast food diet basically says that, that life is about immediate gratification. You have a desire, you should have it met. Whatever desire or pleasure you want, you should have it met. But it's the fast food diet. And often what happens is those that live the starvation diet swing the pendulum. And so they live their entire lives as so-called holy people. On the outside, they, they, they live their, their entire lives like holy, respectable, righteous people. And then something happens. And you can't even recognize them anymore. They're doing things they would never do before. And the, swing, the pendulum just swung the other way. And so this fast food diet really basically says, whatever you desire, you deserve to have it met. And so consequently, what, whatever comes before us, whoever we want to sleep with, whatever, we just do it right there. But as Christopher West says, we live in a culture that is uh, uh, surrounded with sex, but we remain stars for love. And sooner or later, the fast food diet gets you sick. Keep eating McDonald's. Keep eating Taco Bell. Keep, see how you are after a couple of months of just fast food. And that pertains to our relationships, that what begins to happen in fast food is we take that which is temporal and we elevate it to that which is really idolatry. And idolatry is basically taking a good thing and making it into a God thing. 
taking a, uh, something that's not ultimate and making it into ultimate. And it's the fast food diet. It's the fast food gospel, but it's a cheap imitation of the banquet. And often the fast food is the way towards addiction too. That I have to have it, all of a sudden it, it overpowers you. That you can't help but eat it over and over and over again. And this is not just for a desire for sex. It can be for a, a, a desire for uh, wealth or status or position. Whatever that is finite, we, 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 we promote it to that of God-like status. It's the fast food diet. Putting our desires and longings for God and putting it on people. That relationship will never satisfy you the way you really long to be satisfied. Your marriage will never satisfy you the way you really long to be satisfied. And as long as we keep putting those, the objects of our longings on temporal things, we will be disappointed. We will end up sick. But what we're really longing for is the banquet. We don't want the starvation diet. We don't want the fast food diet. What we're really longing for is a banquet. And the kingdom of God is a banquet. It's a feast of communion with God, which leads to a feast of communion with others. And the gospel is the message, really the gospel gives us the message that, that all of life is a gift because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. All of life now has been redeemed and restored. Music is a gift. Art is a gift. Creation, people, but those things are to point us to God. Those things are not an end of themselves. They are to, they're to be, to be trendant, transcendent, trendant, what's the word? Transcendence, transcendental. Help me, Jesus, today. <laughs> I spent a lot of money on my education. I'm using words like that every now and then, okay, you know? The banquet, we were created for this ecstasy with God. This, this longing, this desire to be met. And the starting point and the end point of our desires must be God. And so Jesus, watch the passage, he, he, he satisfies her thirst, and then... Essentially, he reorders longings, and that's what God does with us. He satisfies the deepest desires of our hearts, and then he reorders, rightly orders, our longings. And so the love of God, said this way, the love of God doesn't remove our desires. The love of God reorders them. God doesn't remove your desire, your passion, your longing for intimacy, whether it's emotional, he does not remove that. And the, and the quicker we, we say amen to that, the, the better we will be. But he reorders our desires. He reorders them. And this is what the woman experienced at the well. After years of frustration, her desires were reordered and quenched by Jesus. And so if I can summarize, I know this was a lot, this was a very heavy, meaty passage here. Uh, this is what I'd say here, that number one, we're all longing for something. All of us in this room, you're longing for something. What we learn in this passage is we often misdirect our longings by suppression or by a quick fix. We misdirect it. We see in this passage only Jesus' love can satisfy. He gives water that quenches the deepest thirst of our lives and he reorders our desires in such a way that's consistent with his kingdom, consistent with his gospel. And that Jesus' water, really, his love is to shape us into becoming a community that loves, that we, New Life Fellowship, that we are a church, that we, are, we know others and are known by others. That we create safe space for appropriate vulnerability. That people know us, 
not just our behavior and our uh, belief systems, but they know our full story. And may we be a church that we are longing to connect with God and also with each other. And we learn in the story that the, 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 the truly thirsty one was not the woman. The truly thirsty one was Jesus. He thirsts for you. He thirsts for you today. And the woman experiences, I love, I, I love how I heard it this week, this Samaritan woman came for a drink, but she left becoming a fountain of gushing water. She, she came in looking for a little bit of water. She left as a fountain gushing with water, so much so that she goes back to the village and she leads the village to Christ. There was a life, there's a vibrance, there was a joy. She didn't have that a little while ago, but a little taste of Jesus' water transforms us into a fountain. And what you're longing for, you want joy, you want peace, you want your passions reordered. What you need is a drink from Jesus' water. And so the question is, what well are you drinking from today? What well are we drinking from? The well that we are longing for deep down inside is the well of Jesus' water because it's his love that sees everything about us and loves us. Amen. Let's close our eyes. Let me invite the worship team to come forward. We all have longings and desires. God is the one who ultimately quenches our desires and God reorders our desires. And maybe today you realize, Lord, I've been looking in all the wrong places to have my deepest desires quenched. Maybe you've been looking to a relationship, an experience, a job, money, possessions, achievements. But only the love of Jesus can quench our deepest thirst. And only the love of Jesus can reorder our desires in a way that lines up with his kingdom. And so, Lord Jesus, would you come? You see our longings, you see our desires, you see our frustration. Lord, for those that have lived the starvation diet, may you give us a new vision that you want to reorder our desires, you want to give us good desires. For those of us in this room, Lord, that have lived a fast food diet, going from one relationship to the next, one experience to the next, and empty and empty and empty, Lord, would you remind us that it is only in your love that we would be eternally quenched. Lord, may we say yes to the banquet that's before us. A feast of your love. And may we know and be known by you and know and be known by others. I want to invite the prayer team to come to my left. We have the Lord's table to my right. And there's a few folks that I want to invite to come up for prayer. Before I do that, I want to say at New Life Fellowship, if you can really narrow down what we're trying to accomplish as a church, we're trying to connect people to the risen Jesus alive and we want us to have a vibrant relationship with Jesus one that's filled with his love and his grace and his compassion but we also want to connect people to each other 
create spaces where we're able to be vulnerable, to know and be known. And in the fall, and just put this on your mental note, this is why we have courses like Emotionally Healthy Relationships, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Because to learn, to learn this, it's about spirituality, it's about our longings to connect with others and our longings to connect with God. And that's one of the ways at New Life that we try to lead you along that path. How do you appropriately connect? The world teaches you connection, but a lot of times it's inappropriate connection. But how do we, in a healthy way, connect with others and connect with God? And so when you see us talking about this course over and over again, that's why. Because we deeply long to be connected. But we have our prayer team here. And when we talk about sexuality, a lot of it is covered uh, through shame. Shame is a uh, massive just cloud over many of us as it pertains to our sexuality and our spirituality. Uh, maybe some things have been done to you. Maybe you've made some bad decisions. Maybe you've had some bad theology. And so to even talk about it, there's shame. You've longed for connection with others. It didn't happen. Or you connected in a way that's inappropriate and left you more thirsty. And there's shame about who you are and what you've done. And the love of Jesus wants to wash away shame in this room to make you free. That woman, that Samaritan woman, wasn't just that she was an outcast. I imagine as well, she went probably early. Why would she go during the hottest time of the day? Shame. No one else is going to be here. No one else is going to see me. And it's easy to just to hide in shame. That's what shame does. It's the primordial sin. In the garden, the first sin, they, they were naked and unashamed. Sin comes in. The first thing that comes in is shame. And Jesus Christ wants to wipe away your shame and make you free like this woman, gushing with joy and vibrance and life. She could go back and say, listen, that's what I've done. But Jesus Christ has forgiven me. He's given me grace. I am a new person. And that's what we want to walk out saying today as well. Don't let shame dominate you. That's why we have a prayer team that through the power of the Holy Spirit, through prayer, that shame's power can become start to become eradicated from your life. And so come up for prayer for whatever you need, whatever issue you have, we would love to pray with you. But as we close, I want to invite you to open your hands uh, towards heaven to receive a blessing, knowing that the love of God, the favor of God, the grace of Jesus, the companionship of the Holy Spirit, that God is with you. God is for you. And so with your hands in a posture of receiving brothers and sisters and sons and daughters of the living God, may the Lord bless you and may he keep you. May he shine his face upon you. May he fill you with peace. And may you walk out of this building in the power of the Holy Spirit, drinking from the well of Jesus. May he satisfy your soul this week. And may he reorder your desires such a way that's consistent with who he is. And so I bless you on the strong, in the beautiful, in the resurrected name of Jesus and the people of God said, amen. Grace and peace, everyone.